The name of this talk is Dukkha, Compassion, and a Cup of Tea. (laughs) The Buddha was a realist. He did not um, share his teachings to make life rosy for us, to give us a temporary happiness. Nor was he really pessimistic about the teachings. He merely told the truth. He merely said how things are. And this, was, this is the middle path of the Buddha, to be realistic about how things are. The Buddha saw that opening to the spiritual path required accepting the truth of dukkha, accepting the truth of suffering. And so this is the first noble truth. Not that life is suffering, as Steve explained the other night. The first noble truth is the truth of suffering. This is how things are. And we find as we open to the path that the greater resistance we have to this truth, actually the more suffering we have when we use a lot of our energy to resist, to deny, to find other ways of um, experiencing life other than how it really is. Joan Halifax calls it a sacred catastrophe when we open to the truth of suffering. A lot of times, and as all of us are experiencing and have experienced also in the the past with our practice, we can get discouraged. We can feel a sense of hopelessness. We begin to see that there's no security anywhere because we begin to see impermanence so deeply. This feeling of not feeling truly safe or secure starts to come about. And it is a direct result of seeing impermanence very, very deeply, whether we can figure it out or not. This is what happens. When it comes comes to this point in our practice, we really need to reassess our commitment to the truth, to know the truth for ourselves. We need to look deep inside and say, do I have this commitment? Can I carry it out to know this truth so deeply? The Buddha went through as much or even more, who's to say, as we are in opening to the truth. And there's a very beautiful mythopoetic rendition of how he went through this during his time when he sat under the Bodhi tree, opening to this truth. Joseph Campbell describes this encounter in this kind of mythopoetic way. 
and it conveys very vividly the energy that is involved in the commitment to truth. This is how the story goes. Siddhartha gave up his extreme ascetic discipline and taking some food, nourished himself for the third great event in his journey, the great struggle. Having regained his strength, he seated himself beneath the Bodhi tree with the resolve that he, could, he would not get up until he had attained supreme enlightenment. As he sat there with an wavering resolve and determination, all the forces of Mara, all the forces of illusion and ignorance assailed his mind. The Bodhisattva placed himself with a firm resolve beneath the Bodhi tree on the immovable spot and straightway was approached by Kamamara, the god of love and death. The dangerous god appeared mounted on an elephant and carrying weapons in his thousand hands. He was surrounded by his army, which extended 12 leagues before him, 12 leagues to the right, 12 to the left, and in the rear as far to the confines of the world. It was nine leagues high. The protecting deities of the universe took flight, but the future Buddha remained unmoved beneath the tree. And the god then assailed him, seeking to break his concentration. Whirlwind, rocks, thunder and flame, smoking weapons with keen edges, burning coals, hot ashes, boiling mud, blistering sands and fourfold darkness, the antagonist hurled against the Savior, but the missiles were all transformed into celestial flowers and ointments by the power of the Bodhisattva's ten perfections. Mara then deployed his daughter's desire, pining, and lust, surrounded by voluptuous attendants, but the mind of the great being was not distracted. The god finally challenged his right to be sitting on the immovable spot, flung his razor-sharp discus angrily and bid the towering host of the army to let fly at him with mountain crags. But the future Buddha only moved his hand to touch the ground with his fingertips and thus bid the goddess Earth bear witness to his right to be sitting where he was. She did so with a hundred, a thousand, a hundred thousand roars so that the elephant of the antagonist fell upon its knees in obeisance to the future Buddha. The army was immediately dispersed, and the gods of all the worlds scattered garlands. So we feel like, we can sometimes feel like this also, assailed upon by rocks and sharp disks and fire in the body and fire in the heart and mind. It's not very different from the Buddha's experience when we take a look honestly. But the Buddha had a firm resolve to remain seated in that immovable spot and open to what were all the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion. And his great resolve, his great commitment, was to purify them, 
or to renounce them. And so this is what we do with every moment of awareness that we bring to whatever experience is in the present moment. When there is some form of aversion and we bring awareness to the moment, we are renouncing that. We're purifying that moment. If there's some form of attachment, we bring awareness to the moment. We are renouncing that. We're purifying that. This we do over and over again. And in this bringing attention over and over again to the present moment, we begin to see so deeply the impermanence of every moment, the fleeting nature. And we begin to realize that there's no place where we can rest any security, any um, feeling of stability. We begin to feel unstable. We don't know what's happening, but things keep coming and going, coming and going, coming and going. And it feels uh, like a big shake-up. We feel sometimes fractured and uh, wonder, what is this continuum called self? What is this mind and body? We don't do it in a logical way or a way that we're figuring out, but it comes in a way that's quite organic because we're opening to suffering, we're opening to impermanence. And because of this, this sense of hopelessness, the discouragement can come, the great doubt in our ability to practice, in our even um, uh, confidence in the path, we begin to say, gee, I thought this path led to happiness and there's nothing but dukkha here. <laughs> but it, it really takes going through it to know deeply. And the Buddha showed us this way of experiencing it because it's really the only way that we can develop the compassion that we need in order to live in this world, to be on this earth, and to benefit all other beings including ourselves. If we didn't experience dukkha in this way, we wouldn't experience deep compassion. And so I appreciate the completeness of the Buddhist path. It may be possible to go straight to that place of knowing boundarylessness or emptiness or uh, voidness or nibbana, nirvana, if we did it that way, we wouldn't understand compassion in an authentic way. And it's so important to be compassionate on this earth, in this world, with each other, in order to live our lives fully and not half-heartedly. So I'd like to talk about compassion more and its connection to dukkha and how we begin to open our hearts to 
uh, dukkha only with compassion. When I was practicing, well, the, the times that I have practiced um, in places where it's much colder than Hawaii, which is most every place else in the world, <laughs> I have found that I, uh, I needed to bring a hot water bottle, which I would carry with me under my, uh, under my shawl to the sitting hall and just put it on my tummy and uh, to bring special teas that I liked and to really care for myself instead of, um, you know, working like a warrior with it, which I could have a tendency to do, and I have done. And there have been many, many times when walking meditation has... uh, not been complete without a cup of tea at one end, um, <laughs> warm tea, and where I could really combine that a warrior-like determination to be free, to renounce greed, hatred, and delusion with care for myself. So there are many hallways at uh, Insight Meditation Center. Maybe some of you know the hallway that leads from um, the Catskills over to the annex, kind of above the uh, uh, a place where there's nothing underneath. And I would do walking meditation there. And there would be one cup of hot tea at the end, and I would just do walking meditation until I got to that place. And I'd, I would very mindfully drink a sip of tea, and then I'd go back come back again, very mindfully drink a cup of tea. And when the tea was gone, one sip at a time, then the walking was done. (laughs) And it was so important to treat myself that way, with a lot of care, to have um, even have beauty around me when I could, to pick a flower and put it near me, or to um, be warm and really treat myself through this sacred catastrophe with a lot of care. Compassion in the Sanskrit uh, is a word called karuna, and it means noble heart. It's a refinement of loving kindness that allows our heart to open to suffering. Compassion is born out of metta, all of these Brahma-viharas, as I'll talk about during the course of this retreat, are interwoven together. You can't have compassion without metta. And so uh, it's sort of born out of metta, and it's a refinement of metta. One thing is different with compassion than is with metta is compassion really opens us to suffering. It has a sense of courage to it, a sense of uh, the ability to stay resolved and stay steady in the face of suffering. It begins with awareness. And so compassion is the closest Brahma-vihara to mindfulness. It's our ability to turn our attention and open to 
whatever is difficult and not close down so that when we can open to it, we can see it clearly instead of seeing it with rose-colored glasses or denying it, um, pretending it isn't there. We simply have the ability to stand before it and see it as it is, see suffering as it is. It opens to suffering without judging it, right or wrong, good or bad. It merely sees life as suffering or the end of suffering. So when there is a situation in the world or a predicament in our life that may, for example, have a, uh, a cause or a reason for us to judge or blame, when compassion is really deep, we don't see it that way. We just see it as life is suffering. This is a moment of suffering. And it doesn't make us stop there and not do anything about it, but it really gives us the ability to see it clearly and then act accordingly, to act without blame, to act without judgment, and with a lot of energy. A lot of times our energy is bound up in blame, judgment, criticism, and we're unable to act with compassion. Our energy is so tied up in the fire of the mind. So with compassion, we open to the moment, we see it clearly, and we can take action for ourselves and for others with a clear mind, a clear heart. I was once uh, at a place where people were asking the Dalai Lama what they could do for uh, the alleviation of suffering in Tibet and for helping out with whatever they could in order to um, um, help the situation in Tibet. And there was one uh, great activist <coughs> there who felt so, so inspired to do something about it, and his energy was so intense about it all. And the Dalai Lama said, I really, um, I really would like many people to help, as many as they could. And um, this man came forward and said, I would like to help. I'm, I'm sick and tired of all this violence, and went on and on and on. And um, there was a lot of anger and intensity in his voice and in his actions. And the Dalai Lama asked him, to let his heart settle first, to practice first, to develop more compassion so that he could act in the world from that place and not from anger or blame. But how can we allow ourselves to do this? How can we allow ourselves to be human, to feel tender and broken sometimes because of the, um, the suffering of the world? and not to touch it with more violence from our own hearts, hurting uh, ourselves and others more. Can we hold our pain with tenderness, like we can hold a newborn puppy or a kitty or a baby? We don't have the training to do this. 
when something arises within us or in others, automatically our reaction is to strike out, either um, quietly or uh, with our actions or words. We're not trained to see it as suffering or the end of suffering. Can we really be okay with life being imperfect? With us, ourselves as human beings, being, being imperfect? Compassion aligns us with the reality of suffering. It sets us on a more direct path towards the end of suffering when we can accept the truth of this is how things are. Our energy is usually bound up and our hearts are usually closed down with not wanting to see what's truly happening with ourselves and others, with anger, guilt, sadness, and fear. These are barriers to compassion. And these can swiftly cover and consume us, cover our whole hearts and minds, consume us so that we can't see clearly, so that we ourselves are causing more violence to ourselves than anybody else could do to us. It's sometimes in the scriptures uh, likened, anger is likened to a forest fire that works very, very quickly and consumes everything in its path, leaving nothing as a foundation anymore. I came upon an, an example of this recently when Steve and I were teaching in Australia in Perth, and we went to a beautiful monastery, the Bodhinyana Monastery nearby. And uh, not too many years ago, there were great uh, fires in the bush there. And the monk was, uh, the head monk of the monastery was speaking with us. And the place is really so sacred and pristine. The, the, um, the feeling there is, as soon as you step in, settles your heart and your mind. But this fire came, this forest fire, and he was telling the story of the previous monk who was head of the monastery who was there. And he saw this fire that was quite far away. It was... Um, uh, if we looked from here, maybe down the hill, it could, the flames uh, might be um, further than the fence or even beyond. And so he saw these flames coming upon the monastery, and he turned around quickly to see where he would run to. And as soon as he looked back, the, the fire was already consuming him and catching on his robe. It was so quick. And this is what anger in the mind is likened to. If we're not careful, it consumes us. And it, it uh, burns everything down in its path. If we can learn to have compassion for ourselves and others, we can open to this anger. We can open to this, all the levels of aversion, rage, anger that we feel.
The Brahma Viharas work together. Uh, loving kindness is the uh, foundation for compassion to arise. This allows us to care. Equanimity, which is another Brahma Vihara, allows us to be balanced, to be still in the face of difficulty, to be able to open, to face anything, no matter what is, uh, what is in our path, what is in the present moment. True compassion is not really true unless equanimity is there. We may say that we have compassion for others, and, um, but if we're turning away because of it, then it's not true compassion. Equanimity is needed in order to keep open, balanced, and still in the face of suffering. So we really need to develop equanimity in order to be still, balanced, open in the face of suffering and care from loving kindness in order to touch that suffering, in order to um, know that we can stand before it and not let it consume us. The stillness of equanimity allows us to see unwaveringly clear what's in front of us with pure awareness. And this is how mindfulness dovetails with the Brahma-viharas. With this unwavering ability to see clearly, then we can open more with courage to the deep understanding of impermanence. This movement of compassion towards the alleviation of suffering then ensues after that. We're able to stand with stillness, we're able to care, we're able to see clearly, and then we can take compassionate action. When all of these are present, Compassion allows us to see more deeply than just what is presented to us in the moment. We're able to see far beyond what the immediate needs may be. There's a story about Ryokan, who was um, a hermit who lived in the forest. And um, he tells a, a, po- a, a haiku, this is one of his famous ones about a thief. And the haiku goes, the thief left it behind, the moon at the window. And what the story behind this is, is that this thief came to uh, Ryokan's hut. And as you know, Ryokan hardly owned anything at all. In fact, one of the names of uh, his books is One Robe and One Bowl, and that's about all he owned. And this thief came and took whatever he had and left Ryokan there just stark naked. <laughs> and when the thief left, this compassion arose in Ryokan, and he looked at the moon 
And a deeper story than just this haiku was that he saw the moon and said, if only I could have given him this moon. He saw the deeper thirst in the, in the thief. And this is what compassion allows us to do, to see more deeply into the suffering of another being without getting caught up in blaming or um, discrediting. Recently, last year, there was a, um, a retreat at a place where we usually go in the Northwest. It's called Cloud Mountain Retreat Center. And it's a beautiful place. It's one of the most beautiful retreat centers that Steve and I teach at. And when we went there, at that particular time, they were clear-cutting the area, 15 acres all around. And this one area of five acres was just sort of in the middle of it. And the other 15 acres uh, were land owned by the father of the owner of the retreat land. And so we, um, we awakened about the very first morning to the roaring sound of chainsaws. And they had this particular machine there that, uh, that wrapped its, uh, some kind of big claws around the tree and that sawed it and then that carried the tree over to a place where it could be laid down and picked up later. And these chainsaws were, how far away do you think? Probably from here to um, beyond our cabin. They were that close. And so these chainsaws would pick things up, and then when the tree would fall, the earth would rumble beneath us. And this was every morning starting at about 5.45 in the sitting. And it went on till about 3 or 4 in the afternoon with a break for lunch. And this was a, about a 17 or 18 day retreat. And so you think the noise here is a problem. <laughs> when you've gone through that, <laughs> you can go through just about anything. Um, so. What was really, really hard to deal with for those of us who knew was that the, the person who owned that land was the father of the retreat center. And he didn't have much care or understanding about what we were doing, even though we told him we were in silent retreat and all of that. And so, of course, we all sat there with a lot of blame, anger, rage, difficulty with all of the noise. We did all kinds of things to, um, to help our practice. We moved and we sat in the dining room instead of the sitting hall so we'd be further away. Um, uh, we gave the talks during times when they were doing the most sawing so that they could sit when people were, uh, when they were, when it was the most quiet. And so we all learned to open our hearts a little more, but still in my own heart there was this blame and rage about this man who did not understand what we were going through. 
And so I learned just through a conversation that this man, the uh, father, first of all had given the land to his son. And uh, the land also was earned, the, to pay for the land, it was earned through his working in a sawmill. And here we were, all these people who were upset because all of these trees were being cut down. And the very land that we were on was purchased by working in the sawmill. And we came to see our own, uh, th that here we were using all kinds of paper products and all kinds of things that required the sawing down of these trees. We became very interconnected with the whole thing instead of more and more separated. I heard that this man had a very difficult situation when he was younger in that he accidentally shot and killed his brother. And his parents seemed to never forgive him for that. And every time after, after that I learned that, every time a tree was cut, I felt his suffering. And it got me so connected with his suffering that I came to a place of understanding about it instead of blame. I could feel all the rage in the trees being uh, brought down. I could feel his cry of wanting peace deep inside. And so behind a lot of acts of uh, violence is a lot of suffering. If we can see this clearly, if we can see more deeply, where can we put our blame? Where can we put our judgment? Where can we put our criticism? We can have nothing but compassion for it. Longfellow says, if we could read the secret histories of our enemies, we would find in each person's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. It requires understanding. Compassion requires understanding. But we can't understand unless we can stop long enough to see clearly. And we don't usually give ourselves that chance. Unless you understand the meaning of suffering, there will still be a measure of hypocrisy to your compassion, the Dalai Lama says. So unless we can understand suffering by going through it, we'll never understand it in others and we'll never be able to open our hearts to compassion. The near enemy of compassion is pity. It's disguised as compassion because it seems like compassion, but it feels very closed down. It drains our energy. We want to turn away or we take action so that the suffering will go away. I felt this very clearly when I lived in the Far East, when I lived in the Philippines, which is the place of my birth. and mostly at every stoplight that you come to, there are beggars that come to the window 
and they hold out their hands. And you have to close your window sometimes really fast when you come to a stoplight because the, the beggars just rush upon you. And it used to be like that when I was there seven years ago. And uh, there were times when I would put out, put some coins in my hand and, and put them out. And they would just, I would bring my hand back and my hand would be ripped apart because of, you know, them trying to get the, um, the coins. And at that time, it was so hard for me to look at it. I would, I would want to give, but I would just want to give quickly and then turn away from it. I lived in a completely different world within Manila in a political, wealthy family. And uh, it was a place where I couldn't open to suffering then. And so this is pity when you want to do something quickly so that you can get away from the suffering. Or in some ways your heart is closed down. It drains our energy. We spend a lot of energy keeping closed instead of opening. The far enemy is cruelty, and this is very easy to detect. What's not easy to, to detect is sometimes an underlying self-righteousness to the cruelty. When we see people suffering and we say, somehow you deserve to suffer because you did the world wrong, or me wrong, or somebody else wrong. It's interesting to look for these, open to these places of suffering in us, to pity, to self-righteousness, to cruelty, to see where we're cruel to ourselves and others. When we practice forgiveness, it's very much like compassion because compassion and forgiveness both open to suffering. We usually can't keep our hearts open. And with forgiveness, it's an attempt in, or a energy in that direction of opening our hearts to someone else or to some situation that is keeping us closed down. Compassion is exper experiencing reality with an open heart. If we can't experience reality with an open heart, then we're only experiencing half of life. There's a story about the Dalai Lama when he was working uh, with a group of psychologists in Los Angeles. And they were meeting for uh, a week-long or a two-week-long seminar on psychology. And the Dalai Lama was presenting Buddhist psychology. And he asked at the beginning to uh, give him somebody to work with. And he would use uh, some Buddhist psychology in trying to alleviate the suffering of this person. So this woman was... Uh, volunteered happily, of course, and she um, worked with the Dalai Lama. And she was very challenging and uh, had very difficult uh, conditions in her life. And the Dalai Lama felt at the end that he couldn't help at all. In fact, his words were, 
I failed utterly. But then he said that there was a time towards the end of working with her when, with so much compassion, he just put his hand up to her arm and said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I can't help you. I wish I could alleviate your suffering. And it was only in those moments, that act of compassion, did he see some opening, some softening in this woman. And so he really um, spoke to all of the psychologists at that time the importance of simple compassion, how powerful it is. What are the barriers to recognizing compassion or to caring for ourselves? The barriers are a sense of unworthiness about ourselves. Maybe we're not worthy enough for compassion. We don't feel like um, there's anything good about us. Sometimes it's embarrassment because maybe we've always carried this demeanor of being able to get through life with toughness. And to be compassionate or loving and kind is uh, being too soft, and that causes us embarrassment. Or maybe we're just not used to it. We're not used to feeling that way towards ourselves. We're trained to handle life in a different way. Maybe there's shame or a lack of trust and faith in ourselves. The Buddha said you can search the entire universe for someone who deserves your love and compassion more than you do yourself, but you'll not find that person anywhere. You, more than anyone, deserve your own love and compassion. It's only by going through it that we develop it for others, having the same compassion for ourselves that we can for others, and vice versa. A couple of years ago, when my daughter called me because she was um, physically abused by her husband, and she called me from the hospital in San Diego and also told me that my granddaughter was hurt and abused by him by her father, my uh, daughter's husband. And it was very shocking to me at the time. My daughter's a very big woman, and um, she's always been able to take good care of herself. And for her to ask for my physical help must have meant to me at that time that she was really in trouble. And so she asked me to fly there that day to help her come home to Maui. And so I took a plane out that evening, and all along the way, all I had, all I could think of, and the visions I had were of strangling him, of spitting on him, of kicking him. It just all of this rage and anger came out, and um, 
I didn't know how I'd be able to face it when I got there. And uh, my granddaughter was burned and her hair was pulled out. It was, it was a tough thing that makes my heart fall apart to think about it. I had so much anger during that time towards him. When I got there, we did some things to help her pack up and get out when, she, when he wasn't there as the uh, authorities hadn't picked him up yet. And um, during that time, I was able to keep equanimous and to restrain myself from doing anything. And uh, we got on the plane and were headed back. And somehow, in some part of our conversation, my daughter said to me, you know, he was abused and he was hurt when he was younger. And um, all of a sudden, I felt the same anger in myself as I knew he carried. And I could open my heart to it because I felt it in myself. Not because I thought he was wrong and I was right or he shouldn't do that or I connected with compassion because I felt sorry for him, but because I felt this deep anger and rage in myself, could I open to compassion for him. And somehow my heart softened towards him and I was able to see it more clearly. It didn't condone what he did. I will never um, feel that he did anything right, and I'll always be, uh, have a sense of protecting myself and my children around him. But I can understand how that anger makes one act in life without seeing clearly with confusion. And so it's only through accepting it and ourselves going through it that we're really able to open our hearts with compassion. So in this way, the understanding of dukkha, the going through dukkha ourselves, helps us to be better human beings. There are ways that we can take action that might be uh, forceful, but without anger or aversion. Like if we see a child running across the street and might be in harm's way, we may shout out at that child, or we may yank that child back into safety. We can act in forceful ways, in very powerful, potent ways, without anger or aversion just with pure compassion. Recently, our daughter Therese was uh, working out her hormonal time and uh, spending a lot of time trying to figure out how to stay out later. And, <laughs> and uh, coming home with all kinds of lame excuses and, <laughs> you know, not... Uh, 
not being able to see that we could see right through it because we've been there too one time in our lives. And so there was a time when there was this constant um, fibbing or lying about what she was doing. And we really would have much rather heard the truth even though she was in a place or at a place or, uh, or spending time with friends we didn't approve of. And so at one point we really just had to be strong and firm and get down on her and raise our voice and even shake her and say, Therese, you have to tell the truth. If you don't tell the truth, there'll be a lot of problems in your life. Do you understand? And so finally she did. You know, you have to shake through all those hormones sometimes to get them to, <laughs> to see what's happening. And so when there can be a lot of power and compassion and yet no anger, no aversion, but simply wanting that person to see clearly, wanting to wake them up to how more suffering can be in their lives if they don't see what they're doing, they're on the wrong path. Or there might be ways that we act that are very, very delicate, that maybe have no words at all, where we are just um, opening our hearts, just listening. Like when a friend needs to talk with us and all we need to say is, I feel your pain, I care about you. And maybe we have nothing to offer in terms of a remedy, but just care. It's so potent. There's another beautiful story of Ryokan in his act of compassion. It is said that Ryokan never preached or reprimanded anyone. Once his brother asked Ryokan to visit his house and speak to his delinquent son. Ryokan came but did not say a word of admonition to the boy. He stayed overnight and prepared to leave the next morning. As the wayward nephew was lacing Ryokan's straw sandals, he felt a warm drop of water. Glancing up, he saw Ryokan looking down at him, his eyes full of tears. Ryokan then returned home, and the nephew changed for the better. Simple acts of compassion, of opening our hearts, letting people know we really care, can be done in many ways. So if we don't open truly to the first noble truth, we'll never know compassion. And we need compassion in this world. It is said that the Dharma or the truth is likened to a great bird with two great, strong, beautiful wings. And one wing is compassion and the other wing is wisdom. And you can't have a true spiritual life, a full spiritual life, without both. If you have compassion without wisdom, it's incomplete. 
this compassion without wisdom is a compassion without knowing dukkha yourself, without knowing suffering yourself, without knowing also the impermanence of suffering yourself, without knowing the selfless, interconnected nature of suffering. But when we have wisdom, we realize the interconnectedness of ourselves to all others. We realize the impermanence of life deeply. We can open our hearts compassionately to wisdom with a lot of care for ourselves and others. It's important to keep a balance when you're practicing to know for yourselves when you're getting too hard on yourselves and others and back off or have a cup of tea or just watch the clouds move. This is not a bad practice as long as you are mindful of what's happening. To give yourself a lot of space if you feel tight to loosen up. If you're too loose focus in a little more. Therese, our daughter, uh, says to Steve a lot, uh, when, especially when we go shopping, when we go to the shopping mall, because Steve does not like to go to the shopping mall. He knows what he wants and he goes, boom, I'm going to go right through that. And as soon as we get to the mall, he says, uh, show me your list. Show me your list. What, what exactly are we going to do? <laughs> I, and I, I don't want to have a list. I want to look around. <laughs> um, so as soon as, <laughs> as soon as we get to the mall, because Therese knows that I like to look around and knows that her dad likes to just focus right away, she says to her dad, Dad, float, just float, okay? <laughs> and then she turns to me and she says, Mom, focus, okay, focus. <laughs> Trying to keep us balanced. <laughs> so when you know that you're focusing too much, just watch the clouds, how they're floating, you know. Stand back a little bit, give yourself a little space, have a cup of tea. It's okay to take a walk and just be stepping, stepping, stepping. It's okay to be mindless sometimes. Don't, don't let Steve hear me say that. Or, or, but I think in the West we're too hard on ourselves. I think that we need to loosen up more and care for ourselves more. Um, and if we're too loose to know that too, you know, to tighten up the practice a little more, really know what our energy needs to be in order to be on the middle path. Constantly ask yourself, am I on the middle path? And see whether you can go more in that direction. So as we go through our own sacred catastrophe and we re-enliven our commitment to the truth. Don't forget about compassion and a cup of tea also. So let's sit for a while.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.